Today's episode is sponsored by Bellum of Mutants and Men, a two-player card game played on a checkerboard. Your bears consist of only unit and strategy cards. That's right, there are no resource cards like mana or land. Instead, resources are generated by you, the player. You just construct your deck and battle it out. At the beginning of each player's turn, your hand size replenishes your stockpile. Then spend the stockpile by fielding units to march across the battlefield or employ tactics to sway favor in battle. Each player only starts with 10 health points. And games will last as long as you can stand the tides of war. So get out there, create your defenses, or build your offense. The game is live on Kickstarter right now, where you can be the first to break new ground in this industrial fantasy card game. Bellum, a mutants and men, where it's not the cards that win the game, but the tactician that wins the battle. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about experiences. We're talking about four different types of experiences, experiences you really need to take into account when designing a game, when putting a game into the market. You really need to be concerned about these things. We're talking to Ian Zhang from Deepwater Games. Ian, welcome to the show. Ah, hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, man, I'm excited. It's, it's good to finally get you. I feel like this is something we've been trying to work out for a while, and so I'm, I'm excited to finally have you on the show to talk about these things. Uh, I've had other designers actually email me and say, hey, you need to talk to Ian. You need to talk about these these experiences, this, these concepts he's been working with, he's come up with, or at least borrowed from uh, other people and kind of put together in a really cool way. And so, man, I'm just pumped to kind of get your ideas on, on these things because I feel like it, these are... These are topics that people really need to be thinking about beyond theme, beyond mechanisms. There's so much more in the design theory space that, that designers, especially new designers, just need to be aware of, just need to be thinking about in their design time. And so I'm excited to talk to you about that. But first, let's get your bio. Who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. I'm Ian Zhang. I've, I'm, I consider myself a developer more than anything. If you think about it in terms of like an, uh, the classic book companies, author will bring a book to a, a publishing company and they'll say, hey, I made this book. And then the publishing company will be like, great, now take it to the editor because it needs to be fixed. And so I am the editor in that sort of regard. So a designer brings a game to a publisher, the developer kind of takes the game and makes it into what needs it, what the publisher needs it to be. Uh, depending on theme, depending on uh, price analysis to make sure that it, it will hit the market at a point that the publisher actually wants. So that's the long and short of what I do. But how did I get into that? I like to say persistence. I've worked with a lot of companies in the past. I've worked with Plaid Hat, Mayday, uh, Genius Games, all these companies that have really helped me to hone my game design and taking a, an idea that's there really honing it into something that makes it shine more than, you know, something that just a standard game might just come in. So it's, I've been just doing it over and over and I've been getting my name out there. I've been helping out when needed. Uh, I first started designing games back in uh, about five, six years ago. Uh, I was a teacher in Michigan and I found that board gaming was a great way to connect with my kids, especially those on the autism spectrum, because I had a lot of them. Uh, and it, it games, board games provide a social situation that has definite rules. So kids on the spectrum have a 
a lot easier time interacting with people when they know what the rules are. And so by having this board game club, I got into this and I got to know my students a lot better because of these fairly strict rules of interaction. And I moved into, I moved away from teaching. I, I got into professional development and I've learned more about how to talk about experience in, in general, because everyone experiences the world in a slightly different way. And I work at the music, uh, the Carnegie Science Center here in Pittsburgh. Uh, and I do, again, teacher professional development as my day job. I, I, I'm Batman at night and do board game development, which is just a <laughs> delightful thing to say out loud. But one of the professional development sessions that was held at the Science Center was held by a, there was a talk by Jim Schreiber, who is currently a Duquesne professor uh, here in Pittsburgh. And he developed, he worked at the Smithsonian Institute for several years before getting the professorship at Duquesne. And he helped develop a museum exhibit model that dealt specifically with how people experience museums. Because every person prefers to interact with things in a different way. They're, you can't just lump everyone together and say like, yeah, sure, this is going to be great. Everything's going to be fine. Everyone's going to love it because everyone loves this, right? Wrong. <laughs> everyone really does experience the world slightly differently. And being able to differentiate those experiences really has helped me, especially in figuring out how to make game experiences in particular, more welcoming and more uh, inclusive of more types of experiences. So the model that Jim Schreiber came up with was the IPOP model. So it's I-P-O-P. And it classifies people into four categories. And this isn't really like, you know, every, everyone's not going to have one experience and that's it. It's going to be a spectrum of, of all of these. I, I kind of like to think of it like a preference model. Like if, if you like, uh, you'll have, this is your primary one, this is your secondary, this is your tertiary, and this is your quaternary. Uh, and just figuring out how to balance each of those is, is really helpful. And the key behind this is that when you're designing anything, making sure that you're at least throwing a bone to every one of these experience types will help to make your game more successful in play tests and in publication. And so the iPod model is idea, people, object, and physical. And I've, I, I don't like having two Ps, so I've been replacing it with tactile. Uh, that, that last one, instead of physical, it's tactile. So it's iPod, which is, I don't know if it's as, it's 420. We're recording on 420 today, so that's funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, that is true. It's not quite as catchy as iPop, but you know, iPot. Well, sure, we'll, we'll go with it. iPot or or potty. Uh, it's there. We go. That's <laughs> even better. So yeah. let's go through each each one in turn. And as uh, listeners, as you're hearing this, think about which one you are and uh, is your primary. And maybe there's a secondary that pops out to you really well. But just keep that in mind as you're listening. So idea people are all about, they're the thinkers. Like they're the ones who go to a museum to read everything. They go to an art museum so that they can read the text beside each picture. Then the picture is cool, but like the, the text is even better. They'll go through an exhibit and they will look at every single stupid word plaque in the place. I don't know if you've picked up on this, but I'm not 
one of these people. <laughs> I, I don't like analyzing things in, in that way. That's just not my preferred method of inter interacting with exhibits. Uh, I, if there's something that I think is cool, maybe I'll read it, but it's, it's all about the reading and the comprehension of the background, what's going on in that. So these are the flavor text people. Absolutely. I, I would even say like they're the people who love reading rule books and diving into them, figuring out what's good about them, what's bad about them and fixing the rules that, you know, are uh, not explained as well as they probably should have. So they're, they're also the people that are prone to analysis paralysis generally that I at least through what I found in terms of like they want to think through every possible outcome that could happen in a game and uh, they love the heavy text of the advanced squad leader, you know, <laughs> the, the more rules, the better for them. You know, it's they, they love chunking through all the decision space and really thinking about things on a broad scale. So do these people tend to gravitate towards like heavy Euro style game? Uh, you could you could probably say that. Yeah, it's it's I, again, keep in mind that if, if this doesn't sound like you, but you love heavy Euro games, that just means that like this might be a secondary for you. Yeah. Your primary might be something else. So I found that generally this is the heavy Euro people, but it could go to uh, the, the other one as well. So I'll, I'll get I guess it could also be like people who love Arkham Horror or, you know, games that have a lot of reading, a lot of text, a lot of, yes. you know, thematic stuff going on. Exactly. Well. So it's it, the more that they can imagine things, the more that they can actually read something and take it in and actually have something happen. Like that's that's really what the idea people are all about. The second one is about is people. The people people are those who like playing games or like going to a, a museum to interact with the other people in the room or understand the human element behind things. And I, if you think about it in an art museum, these are the people who might go to the docent and ask about you know the artist's life and figure out what's going on and behind the scenes and getting to know a little bit what's going on, you know, on a human level. And if you think about this, like games like Werewolf or um, Two Rooms and a Boom, like these are these are the kind of high people interaction games that the people people really enjoy. They like the debate. They like talking. They like, uh, you know, they're the people in a heavy Euro game that are trying to convince you that what you're doing is not great for you <laughs> and even though it 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 might be good for you it's it's better for them so it's it's all about making a game more into a an interactive experience with the people across the table and that's really what they the people people enjoy gotcha object people are all about being able to look at things and uh they're they're visually oriented rather than you know um imagination it's more like they want to see things uh, the miniatures are wonderful for these kind of people because they like being able to see things from an eagle-eyed perspective and able to get a lot out of what they see on a visual level and so you know heavy euro games that have tons of miniatures they're going to be more apt to like that because they can see they can analyze the board a lot better uh, i mean if you think about i was just watching a video on to Wakan which is uh, the, the new um, Aztec civilization game. Mm -hmm. And it's a rondel with actions in each space. Like, that's cool. But you could do it without having all the cool components in there, too, 
but because there are cool components and they the art is very visual and it's very interact like you can you can look from an eagle eye and be able to see everything that's going on very easily because the graphic design is crisp because the tiles are nice and chunky there's it's not too small it allows the object people to interact with the game and be able to see things in a way that really is is appealing to them so that's all about the object people they're they're all about being able to see something they're the visual component of this and then the tactile people are just exactly what you might think it's they want to be able to roll dice they want to be able to move things around they're the people i when you play Catan, are building the little robot out of the houses and the roads uh, they're the ones playing with the components at the table even if it might not mean that that's what they're supposed to be doing uh, these are the magic players by the way who flip their cards back and forth and annoy a lot of other people I, I will apologize for that That myself. I have a problem with flicking cards because I just need to play with something with my hands. I am definitely in that last camp, personally. So it's it's all about just, I, I like interacting because I can move stuff around on a board and I can, uh, you know, Zolkin was really good for me. It's staying on the, the uh, Aztec Mesoamerican theme. I love Zolkin because you've got giant gears that you get to move. It's so cool. So like, there's elements of everything in, in most in most popular games, uh, but it, it really comes down to idea people, which are the imagination, like thinking about things fully, the people people, which love turning games into a interactive experience with other people, the objects people like to vi be visually stimulated, and the tactile people want to actually have something to play with uh, physically. So those are the four experience preferences. And again, th don't think about it like I am. It's not like you, you fit into a bucket. It's just I like this one first, this one second, this one third, this one fourth. And some uh, you you fall in some sort of percentage of each of those as well. So there are some people who only like to play werewolf. Like they go to Gen Con and they play werewolf for four days straight. Like they are pretty much 100% people people and not much else. <laughs> But there are other games that, you know, fulfill each one of those in some way, shape or form. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is these are some of the concepts that like once you talk about it, like once you start putting it out there, it's like, oh, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. But I feel like it's not something people generally think about. It's definitely not on this level. And so, like, what does it look like to design games with these ideas in mind? Like, walk me through that process. So I will use Sovereign Skies, which is... Deepwater's most recent title, because I have a lot of experience kind of figuring out how to deal with this yeah. in this context. So Sovereign Skies is a rondelle game where there are six actions, uh, six spaces that you can take, but you have a mothership that kind of goes around uh, in, a, in a circle, in an orbit around each of these six locations. And on your turn, you get to move once and do that action, but you can pay energy to go further, or you can pay energy to like flip around and start going the opposite way. And so there's there's some element of limited action spaces that you can do, but how you do it is very, very important in relation to all the other players at the table. So when this came to us, it was a fairly object-heavy game. So it was very visually appealing and it had a lot of things going for it uh, because it was... Uh, Aaron Wilson, the designer, is a graphic designer as his full-time job. So the game looked really good just before we even did anything. 
So that, that really helped. But to move it into each of those other realms, we had to have some sort of way to really accentuate that a lot more. And so I, so let's, let's go through each one. So it was already good in object. So we didn't really need to worry about that. So we didn't need to worry about the components all that much, although we did, it, like, we, we have done things with it to, to make it more so, but I'm not going to talk about that all that much. So for idea people, it really came down to the, the actions themselves. We needed to make the actions much more integrated than they already were. Each one kind of did a separate thing that was good for you, but it wasn't really tied in with the rest of the game. So a big part of the first you know, year of development was making sure that the actions on every single one of those six locations mattered in some way, shape or form. Uh, and wasn't just, you know, I do this and it's, it's done. It's I do this and I get to do this somewhere else. And now because I did that somewhere else, now when someone else lands there, I get energy. Okay, now we're moving over here. Now I'm going to take this. And because I have majority over here, I can do this. So it, it added a lot more interaction between all of the six locations. Again, it's the idea, it, it appeals to the idea people because they can plan out several turns in advance. And they can't be like hurt too much in that plan. If other people do things in between those turns, it might mess them up a little bit, but in the end, they won't have to alter their decision space too much, too much in the future. Idea people hate it when a single thing can mess up their entire plan because yeah. they had this whole thing planned out. And now, now you're just doing this. <laughs> it's, it's, it's frustrating. It's like, ah, dang it. But in this game, it's really good because you're never like what other people do never takes away from you but it might affect your, your decision slightly. So it, it allows for that really good chunky thinking, but you don't need to do it if you don't want to. So it's, it's really good for the idea people in that, in that regard. Mm -hmm. But those people who don't like the idea where they're, they're more just like, I'll do what I, I'll do whatever I see fit on this turn and then we'll see what happens. Like they're perfectly fine with that too. So I had to balance that really well. And I think what we have right now is really, really solid. In the people element, it really came, it, the actions actually helped the, by developing the actions, it also helped to increase the people experience type as well. Because before you could just deal with one action and be good and it really wouldn't affect other people. But now because there's so much interaction between each of these six locations, the people people can really come out and be like, wait, hold on, no. You know what? If you go here, it's not the best idea. And they can turn that these people, people can really turn the game into a more interactive human experience because they get to help manipulate what's going on around the board because the action spaces are so limited. It allows for a little bit more debate and you can, the people, people can see what's on the board really quickly and make snap decisions to tell other people what is best for them on their turn. <laughs> It's, I, I'm sorry, people, the non-people people, for, for those of us who are people people, I'm saying people a lot, but <laughs> if other people are trying to tell you what to do on your turn, that they are definitely people people. That's the long and the short of it. But there's, there is space for that in this game. 
And then the tactile, we just increased it. We, we made sure that the, there's lots of ships that you could play with. You have a nice chunky mothership that you get to move around the board and it really appeals to the tactile as well. Like that's the tactile people have tons of ships to play with pretty much all the time. Like the, you have a plenty of supply of ships that allow you to, to play with in between your turn that appeals to the tactile. So we've taken a game that was more object oriented and made sure that there's elements of the other experiences in this game to be able to appeal to a, a much wider market. Gotcha. Now, how important is it to really think through all four of these things? Like do all games need these things? Like if I'm going to make oh, a multiplayer or solitaire Euro game, you know, which, which doesn't have any player interaction whatsoever. I am over here on my little board, do my own little thing and we'll see who has most victory points in the end, not based on anything else as far as interaction. Like, like walk me through, like how important as a designer is it for me to really think, okay, my game has to have all four of these things or, or what? So it, it really comes down to what kind of audience are you going for? As a developer, I am constantly thinking about this because I want the game to be as wide reaching as possible. And I, I can't afford to, as a developer or as a publisher, to completely ignore a section of the audience. That's just not something that I, I, I personally can do. But as a designer, you have to, you should play definitely to your strengths. But if you're trying to play test in a group that, you know, might not be exactly what your demographic is for this game, throwing them a bone really helps for the play testing because it allows the play testers to actually engage on a level that they enjoy and they can get behind. But this also allows you as a, as a designer, when you're playtesting, to temper the feedback of the playtesters based on what kind of preferences that they like. And when you understand this model of, of experience, it allows you to really think about the feed, the, like how people play in a more concrete fashion. So if you see other people, now, now that you've heard this, you'll, you'll start seeing Someone say, oh, wait, no, 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 that's not the right decision for you. No, 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 this is, this is definitely the right decision. You, you can temper that feedback of that person in the future and be like, okay, they are coming from a people perspective, but I'm looking for more idea-focused feedback here. So it's good to know that what you say, like this person is saying that, oh, I didn't really like this aspect of the game. It's because they didn't get to engage in the, in the way that they thought they wanted to. And if you're looking for specific feedback from an idea person, you can, you know, handicap that one a little bit higher so that you can focus on their feedback more. So if you, you have an idea person who said, like, I didn't think that this action really connected to this action all that well. If you're looking for idea feedback, that is the one that you're going to laser focus in on now because you know that this person interacts with games on a more, you know, thought space level. Yeah, gotcha. Now, is there any value in kind of surveying your playtesters beforehand to figure out which ones of these they lean towards? Like, is that is that useful information to know going in, or does it not really matter? So, going into it, I don't really, you know, I I try not to do that because it kind of sets the tone for certain things, and I try to avoid that as much as possible. But that being said, asking after the fact of like, oh, what kind of games do you normally prefer playing? That, that simple question can go a long way in kind of figuring out what feedback to expect. 
Gotcha. And it can also kind of help you, like you're saying, if you're looking for a certain demographic and and you're not really concerned so much about the idea of people for your game because it's super chaotic and there's a lot of luck and things like that. And someone who, you know, the playtester game hates it, but then you come to find out that they love heavy Euro, you know, they love those deep thinking, I want to plan 10 turns ahead kind of thing. You can kind of go, okay, so, you know, this player, I need to hear their feedback for sure. Always listen. But you can also kind of put their, their feedback into a different bucket because they're not exactly in the demographic that you're looking for. Right. But now keep in mind that even even let, let's look at like King of Tokyo. King of Tokyo right. is not an idea game in any way, shape or form. Right. You can't really plan for, you know, turn to turn. But they are thrown a bone in a little bit of planning because you have these powers that are you have three powers always available. And an idea person can be like, OK, if I go for that power, I can do something. Right. And so I can start, they, they have a little bit of planning potential, even in, in like the most Ameritrashy game, there is some sort of thought space that can be exploited in some way, shape or form. Uh, let's, let's think about another one. Um, Jenga is by and far a tactile game beyond any way, shape or form. It is a very, the idea people really don't have anything, but they do, if you think about it, because if if an idea person approaches a Jenga tower, what are they going to be doing? They're trying to plan a, a risky strategy, but also one that will pay off. And so they might try to go for, you know, a, a more riskier pull if it means that it's going to be a much worse turn for the rest of the players around the table. And so it allows even this is why it's really important to kind of like at least throw a bone, at least think about how your game fits into a certain experience type. It might not be the primary, but it should definitely be a secondary or tertiary thought when designing games. Yeah, definitely. And if you think about, like I was just in here thinking through the, some of the most popular, some of the highest rated games on BGG and things like that. And the little list I just created was Ticket to Ride, Catan, Gloomhaven, Pandemic. Just the four games just popped in my sure. mind. All four of those hit all four of these experiences in some really interesting ways. They do it differently. And obviously these games, like a, a player who loves Ticket to Ride isn't necessarily going to love Gloomhaven. But at the same time, there are certain things about both those games that appeal to all these types of players. And so I think if you're thinking from a publishing standpoint, you're thinking from a product standpoint, a I want to do well in the market, marketplace standpoint, like you're saying, it, it really behooves you to to really think through all four of these types of experiences, the types of players that love these experiences, and make sure you're hitting those different angles because you have a much better chance of taking off, of, of actually making money, of selling a lot of copies, and it's something just to be aware of as a designer, right? Because that's definitely what a publisher is going to be thinking about. So if you want to get your game published, you probably need to be aware of it as well. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> that's I, I think that kind of thinking about it is like, let's, let's look at Pandemic because Pandemic had just rocketed to popularity. Number one, because it was more of a cooperative game, which appealed, it, it was a strategy game that the people people could really get behind. Yep. And they, they really enjoyed it because they could, you know, talk with the other players about the strategy behind it. They get the, their kicks out of like figuring stuff out with other people. And I mean, that's why Werewolf is such a great game for them because they're figuring things out with other people and they're trying to suss out what other people know. But idea people, it's all about thinking ahead. They know that deck really well. They know what cities are, are coming and they, they know what the threats are and what the chances are that that, that three cube city might show up. 
the object people have a very, the map is very clear. You know exactly what is a danger just from a very quick glance. The tactile people have all these cubes to play with. They have, uh, they get to move around the board. Like every one of those experiences is at least touched on in some way, shape or form. And so it's really, really good. It, it, I think that played into why it became such an international success because it was so accessible to so many different groups of people. Yeah, absolutely. Now, is it possible to go too far with any of these to kind of overthink? Like, have you run into that where you just kind of find yourself overthinking about one particular experience or the other? It's a really good question. I, I don't really design so much for it. It's, it's more that it's like a check for me. It's, it's, am I hitting this? If I'm not, where could I make an, where could I change things minorly to make sure that that fits? Like again, with, with Sovereign Skies, it wasn't that, you know, oh, I have to make this more idea focused. It's more that like, I saw a problem with the game in that the actions weren't really well connected. And so we ended up connecting them in subtle ways that really brought out some interesting uh, thought space. And when I went back and kind of did my check again, I was like, oh, this is definitely an idea game now because people can really think ahead if they want to. And so it, it, it allows for some really interesting, you know, checks throughout. It's just, it's a nice way to just kind of do a quick overview. Like, am I doing this? Am I doing that? Am I doing this? Am I doing that? And if you're doing all four, you're like, okay, cool. <laughs> Continuing. As long as you're touching on each one of them, at least somewhat, you're good. It's it's not that you have to focus so hard on anyone. It's it's more of just like a self-check. Am I doing this? If yes, awesome. If not, can I throw a bone somewhere? Yeah, gotcha. So it's it's not so much thinking too much about something. It's making sure you're, you're not, not thinking about something enough kind of thing. Right. And it's just, it creates a a more concrete way of thinking about things. So instead of, you know, did this feel good? It's, it's now, why did this feel good to you? And so it, it allows you to frame your questions as a designer to playtesters a lot better because it allows you to get the better feedback. Yeah, definitely. I think it'd be helpful to listeners if we go through a few more games and just kind of walk through the different um, ideas that, that, or not ideas, but the different concepts in these four that that game is hitting on. So for, so for instance, like Gloomhaven, what would you say are the four different aspects it's hitting on with these experiences in that game? So I'll be, uh, the, I have a little guilty uh, thing here. I have not played Gloomhaven, nor do I really see myself playing it. Um, I looked it up and I saw it a little bit and it was just not something that would appeal to me because I like variety and I can't play through one thing over and over again. Um, I've, I found that legacy games can kind of, I like them a lot in small bursts and Gloomhaven is one of those games that needs a lot of time investment. And that's just not something that I can really get into because <laughs> I don't yeah. have a lot of time to just play test one game because I have to develop other games too. <laughs> no, I feel you. And it's definitely a wash, rinse, repeat, 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 repeat type of game. Like you're going to do the right. exact same thing for a hundred hours. And it's not a game that really appeals to me either. I was actually super surprised. It was number one. Like I was very, very surprised that that many people love it that much. And so I, I I, have you seen enough of the game to kind of get an idea for these different four things and like why it's so appealing to so many people? So I, I can, I think I can kind of get into it. 
And there is a bias to the number one ranking, I think. And it's the same reason why Pandemic Legacy rocketed to first place as it did. And it's because of what legacy games do. When you have a legacy game, you are committing to playing that game with one group of people. And you want that group of people to be some people that you really like because you should. (laughs) And so you end up playing these games, these legacy games with your favorite people. Mm. And I think that might bias the results of the rating a little bit because you're playing with people that you really enjoy playing with anyway. Yeah, so you're rating the experience around the table, maybe more so or or just as much so as the actual game itself. Right. So let's look at the, let's look at Gloomhaven, just a top level overview of what I know. Correct me if I, if I'm wrong with any of these things, but Mm -hmm. uh, first things first, let's go with object because I, duh, object, this game is very, very visually oriented. There's so much that's represented on the board through standees, through uh, your miniatures, uh, uh, through, not miniatures, uh, through all, basically everything that goes onto the board. It's very clear what is what and what goes where and how things are resolved. It's, there's really no question about that. So the, the visually, the visual people are, it's very easy to appeal to them because it's a very visual game. So let's think about the object. Not object. The the people aspect. The people aspect comes into play in its cooperative nature. It's the same thing with pandemic. Basically, any cooperative game has a people component built in because you have to discuss strategy with other people. Uh, when you're combating each other, like in a in a normal competitive game, you really can't talk through strategy unless it's a team game. And so it you lose a little bit of the people people with that because they don't get to talk strategy all the time. The idea people behind this is all in the planning of you have this hand of cards, these abilities that you are playing and doing something with, and they have to work in conjunction with the people, people to plan out what they're doing on their turn long in advance. So the idea people really excel here because they can help other people through what they're doing as well. There's a little bit too much thought space kind of going into it to be able to alpha game. I mean, there's a little bit, but because you're holding so many cards and the abilities are so random, you can the idea idea people can really shine in like uh, same thing with Spirit Island, where it's like, can you do something to this guy? And it's not that you're saying you should play Magic Missile on this guy. It's it's like, can you can you deal with him? And if you can, awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna come over here. They're the more tactical people that are trying to figure out where to go and when. That, I mean, let's talk about the tactile now. I mean, the entire game is tactile. There's so much stuff to touch and dig through. And I mean, if you don't, if you throw everything in the box, I don't think it even fits. You have to sort it. Like tactile people are in heaven. You know, it's <laughs> each thing is definitely there in droves. So, did I miss anything? I, again, I, I don't. I'm not super familiar with the game. So please correct me if I'm if I'm wrong with anything. No, you're 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 dead on with with all those different things. I feel like all those things come together to create an experience that hits on a, and a lot of different angles. And I, I think you have a, a really good point about the whole legacy experience and maybe why it, why it is number one, not, not to take anything away from it. I think it's an amazingly designed game. I don't, I don't think anyone could look at that game and go, oh, meh. <laughs> like it's right. amazing design uh, from so many different angles. Even if you're not into that kind of game, if you don't like skirmish games or, you know, tactile, you know, uh, battle games or anything like that or tactical, not tactile, but tactical war game kind of experiences. I mean, it's, it's basically taking D and D, 
and it's basically taking the battle system of D and D and removing a lot of the other stuff, and you're you're just doing the fighting over and over again. And a lot of people love that. It's one of the main reasons a lot of people love D and D and role playing games is they love the the tactical. You know, again, it's idea, right? I'm going to do this, and that's going to lead to doing this over here, and that's going to uh, initiate this ability, and then I can do double damage, and it just appeals to a lot of people for those reasons. And it's it's an amazing design. But let's move to another amazing design, one of the the old the OG, so to speak. Let's talk about Catan. How does Catan hit on all four of these experiences? So I touched on the tactile component here in that you have houses and cities that you're trying to put out. And a tactile person also has the the bonus of being able to really like tactily figure out what they have out because of what they're missing. So if I'm like playing with stuff, I'm like, oh, shoot, I don't have any cities left. <laughs> oh, oh, no, I, I'm going to have to. Ugh, oh, what am I going to do now? <laughs> So it allows me to have some sort of feedback in like, oh, I'm, I, I have a ton of roads. I should probably get more roads out. It just, that's a, a tactile thing of like, for me, at least I, I interact through touch and that's just how I work. But in terms of idea, I mean, that's a planning game through and through, like you need to be able to plan to make sure that you have the numbers, the, the enough diversity and numbers to get cards that you, that will get you the things you need and get you trading fodder for, uh, for other things. So idea people love it because they can really plan really far ahead. And like, I'm going to go here and then here and then here, and then I should be set. I'll just build up my cities from there. And there's not too much that other people can do to stop it. If they, if for a really good Catan player, like they, they really can think way ahead. They're, they know that I'm going to be able to build this road first before they can even do anything. So they're not going to be able to mess with this particular plan. So I'm going to do this, then that, and this. And if they do that, I have so I have backup plans. So it, it allows them to think ahead and have like very set path ahead of them that allows them to figure stuff out in their head. The object people, they can see the board very visually. It's a like the numbers mostly stay out of the way. It's it's more do I have all the stuff? Yes. Good. If not, do I have enough stuff that will provide me with trading fodder? Yes. Good. No. Eh. The people, people, I mean, this is, it's literally a trading game. The more that you can make better trades for yourself, the better you do in that game. So the people, people really excel in the trading elements. They might not be very good at building things out, but man, they're really good at getting the things that they need from other people because it's like they know that if i have if i have this oh i can really exploit this they're the people who also like oh does anyone have wood and everyone's like i have wood cool monopoly and, <laughs> and everyone gets mad at them because it's, it's they're they're jerks mm -hmm. and they know how to deal with that after the first time that you do that everyone's going to be watching for it but it's still like it's a fun experience for the people people because they can they can manipulate that sort of reaction out of people. So I, again, it hits each one of those four experience types really, really well in very diverse ways. It's not that the whole game is focused around, you know, building with uh, the little cities and towns, but that's certainly a big element that is important. And so the tactile people get that experience of being able to be like, I'm replacing my city Sorry, uh, my town with a city or whatever they're called. I, every every single game calls those things slightly different, and I've I've forgotten what they are now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is one of the, these are the, the main reasons why that game did so well early on and picked up so much momentum. And it's had you know eleven different expansions and reworking and rethemes, and and it's one of the main reasons why 
it it's one of the it's one of the main games that has brought people into the hobby right so often i you know I, I interview designers and i say hey what got you in and they say oh Catan, you know 10 years ago and, and it's because it appealed to so many different kinds of people in so many different kinds of ways and it, and back then there weren't near as many you know games appealing to as many people and so i feel like it's just a, a testament to exactly what you're talking about with these four different kinds of experiences now is there anything else just to be thinking about that a, a designer a developer a publisher should just be aware of just kind of thinking about as they create games that you know relates to these concepts it's more just think about it as a checklist of do i am i meeting at least a little bit of this it doesn't need to be the focus by any means but are you at least throwing a bone to each one of these experience preferences? If not, consider how you can. It might not be something that's really crazy to add even, or even just change a little thing so that it fits better with a certain type of uh, person. It also helps to have uh, a person that has a preference in your playgroup of each type so that you can ask them questions of like, how would this be more fun for you? And if it means like, oh, make the, the trading more concrete, okay, that's great. Let's do that. And so rather than having trading at all times, now it's more direct trading so that they can be more focused in their, in their trading, that sort of thing. So it's, it, it's something that you'll know it when you try it is really the best way that I can, I can put it right now. It, there's really no like this is a very new way of thinking about things. Like I, I literally came up with myself and I don't consider myself by any means an expert in the field, but like I kind of know my stuff and I, I found a lot of success in using this. So see what, how it works for you. If it doesn't work for you, that's fine. Like it's, it's, it's a tool in a vast toolbox of game design and development. So if you find use in it, great. If you don't, then move on and, Find the best way that works for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ian, man, really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. You got a game on a Kickstarter right now from Deepwater Games. Tell me yep. a little more about that. Well, actually, Sovereign Skies. So that's uh, if depending on when this comes out, it will likely be on Kickstarter right now. And it's you can go check it out. We'll have lots of great content coming out for it. We've developed a whole universe around it. Hopefully, have uh, future stuff, exciting things coming out in the works. Uh, surrounding this whole universe. And I'm just really excited for this game. I think it's a really accessible game for a lot of people. And I think it's something that you can bring down to in front of anyone and they will get something out of it. And I, I, speaking as someone who, who really likes this kind of game, like I'm, I'm a little biased and I've been working on this for over a year now. So I'm <laughs> a quite a little bit biased, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a game that is easy to learn, but has a surprising amount of thought space in it that has really satisfying ways to really combo and play how you like playing. And I really strongly encourage everyone to at least give it a try. And it's a, it's a space game, right? It is a space game. So there will have nice big miniatures in it and lots of little ships that you get to play around with, which is my personal favorite thing are the sculpts. I have been looking at all the art for the sculpts and it's just oh, it's so exciting um, to actually see like the giant motherships going around the board. I'm really, I just, there's something very satisfying about seeing a game that you've worked on and put so much work into like 
become a reality. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure Aaron's, the designer is feeling just the same way. So definitely. And it's a Rondell game as well, right? It is a Rondell. So it's, you're moving around uh, with your mothership, dropping your, your spaceships uh, to orbit the planets of the solar system and uh, take actions that will help you influence the, the people of this galaxy. Basically the whole story is the humans developed faster than light travel and being humans, we like exploring things. And so we travel to this faraway solar system and we find six unique races of aliens that do not have faster than light travel, but have uh, abundant fuel resources for the faster than light travel. So we come in and we're the humans and we're like, hey, we'll help you out. But we have our own, you know, human, humans are not exactly the, the most friendly people in the, in the galaxy. So um, there's some pretty heavy overtones that we expect people will find. Um, and we hope that there will be discussion around that sort of idea. Uh, it's definitely not looked at in a good light in, in this game. We, it's, we hope that people kind of get something out of that as well. There's actually a fifth type of experience as well that is touched on. It's more of an umbrella one, and that's in terms of nostalgia. Uh, that's how Jim Schreiber included it in his iPod model. It's nostalgia is looking, look, looking, going to a museum to be able to experience the past. And this is, we, we tried to keep it as abstract as possible in this game so that it's not like triggering in any way, shape or form, but it's definitely something that could uh, develop discussions should your group want to. And that's, I think, a really important element that we need to keep in mind uh, going forward in the games industry. It's, we want to make sure that everything is accessible as possible to as many players as possible, because without as many diverse groups in the in the hobby, we're not going to, we're, we're going to get this monoculture that's just not good for games. And I mean, if you look at the past like year, I mean, Nyctophobia, uh, Wingspan, like these are very popular games made by women. And frankly, I don't think that they would have been made by a, you know, a white man. Like that's just like, who, who would make a game about birds? Like that's just ridiculous, right? But no, it's not because now, now it's just normalized and it's great. I love the fact that we're getting such a diverse group of people coming into the industry and say, and being so as successful as they are. So Oh, I could go on. That's a whole nother episode, but <laughs> uh, yeah, if you, if you are interested at all in this sort of uh, idea, I'm happy to talk about this on Twitter as well. I'm, I'm at Ian Zhang design. I will talk your ear off about education and board games. Like that's my whole, my whole thing. So the more that we can talk about these sorts of topics, the better it's going, going to be. Awesome. Well, I hope the game does really well on Kickstarter. Like I said, it's on there right now but again again ian really appreciate your time appreciate you coming on the show good luck with kickstarter good luck with deep water games and everything else you got going on right now thank you so much gabe it's been a pleasure coming on thanks for listening hosting for the board game design lab podcast is sponsored by quartermaster logistics the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?